Fasolatida. That's our new intro right there. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to episode 192 of the Waters Waveland podcast. I'm your host, Weishan, and as usual, I have my co-host here with me today, Tony Malikian. I'm, I'm happy doing, to be here. I'm do, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. And, you know, I'm I'm thriving right now in this, you know, quarantine. Doing well. How are you doing well? Tell me. How am I doing well? Well, first of all, I could never do crossword puzzles before, and now I can actually do. You know, I, I can do them okay now. I'm, I'm getting much better at that. Um, I'm learning Tagalog, so you know, I'm not really much right now but you know i'm I'm kind of starting to get there so i'm improving myself way shen you know and i'm taking this as an opportunity and then water's technology and the reporters on water's technology have been producing some bangers of stories so we're doing great we're doing great everything's yeah. positive actually you you and uh reb actually produce a banger of a story mm-hmm. um yep uh Tell us a little bit about that. It's about Morningstar and Sustain Analytics. Yeah. Did well, I first say of that all, right? you Sustain did. You Analytics. Did. Yes. Sustain Analytics. <laughs> first of all, uh, Weishan, that was your best uh, transition ever. So well done there. Um, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yes. Um, before we get into, you know, we have a guest this week, obviously, but before we get into that, just uh, some news that we thought was kind of interesting. Morningstar, which had already uh, had a 40% stake in Sustain Analytics, uh, which is an ESG specialist, uh, decided to buy out that last about 60%. And for a bit of a complicated deal, I'm not 100% sure. I'm never good at understanding the full structures of these deals, but for a fair amount of money. And so, you know, we talked with a couple users of both Morningstar and Sustain Analytics. And they both said this deal makes complete sense because they already have a relationship together. And it's just going to help uh, analytics from to kind of reach a bigger audience. And what I found to be most interesting is there's just been a lot of acquisition specifically. So we've been talking about alternative data acquisition. And I think next week we're going to have a guest on from Refinitiv that we're going to be talking a little bit about that as well. But, um, you know, if you just look just kind of over the last, you know, decade, uh, S&P Global acquired uh, Robeco Sam's, uh, SAM's uh, ESG ratings business, as well as TrueCost. MSCI acquired risk metrics, uh, GMI ratings and carbon data. Moody's acquired a majority stake in 427 uh, just last year and in... Uh, Vigo Eris, I have no idea how to say that name, but whatever. Um, and ISS uh, acquired Ocom Research, uh, IW Financial, and South Pole Group's Investment Climate Data Division. This is all to say, even going into the environment that we're in right now with coronavirus, um, the ESG space was big for acquisition. And you've been seeing the big players like Morningstar. Bloomberg, FactSet, IHS Market, uh, really, really, you know, funneling money either through acquisition or through certain kinds of investments in the space. And uh, we wrote an article about this, but the ESG space being talked about a lot right now is being a useful 
especially the S and G of ESG, are being useful indicators um, when trying to better understand the impact of the coronavirus, um, COVID-19, globally um, on both um, countries, on municipalities, and on individual companies. So, you know, this is just one deal, and I'm not, I, I, it's tough to read into a crystal ball and try and figure out, all right, there's going to be a lot of M&A in the space because people might be hesitant to, there are two schools of thought here. One, people might be hesitant to pull the gun to make an acquisition because they're just trying to make sure that they're set up financially um, for if this is a longer term thing. Or two, there might be some discounts out there um, that can that the bigger players can certainly gobble up. Um, and, you know, somebody that had a good, you know, a, a really good idea kind of created something, started to build something up. But then the funding just kind of dried up as VCs and uh, private equity you know, kind of pulled back. It'll be interesting to see in the next year what the M&A space, especially specific to ESG data is, but there's a lot of talk right now about this data being especially useful in this environment. And again, we wrote an article about this, so we can link to that article um, where we spoke with, uh, I think it was four or five different end users about how they're kind of using ESG data. Um, and yeah, so I, I think that this is it's a good deal for Morningstar. It's good. It hopefully, you know, will be good for Sustainalytics. You hope that, you know, that they keep their staff and everybody intact. That's what they say they're going to do right now. Um, but it also goes to show you that the bigger players are now really they're, they're, they're continuing to go in and pick off uh, some of these smaller specialist firms um, because they're now starting to see the value of um, ESG. And I'll just point to one thing, but uh, one um, fund man, um, uh, portfolio manager at a fund uh, said, what did he say? Blah, 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 blah. Let me go find it here. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, so the fund manager was saying this makes sense. And he says, it certainly is a clear example of the mainstreaming of ESG investing. And that's mm. something that we are hearing a lot about. So I, I guess that that's how I took it. I don't know. How did you see it as, Weishan? Yeah, I, I saw it as 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 just that, what that fund manager said. So I think a lot of times, um, okay, I mean, not a lot of times, sorry. So just going back to the overall premise of ESG, uh, it's still a very tiny sliver of the whole, the overall investment um, uh, pool. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think a lot of focus actually has been put on the E part of ESG. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I have spoken to a lot of uh, maybe even just to friends or something, and they, they think it's more about the environmental part of it rather than the social and governance part aspect of it as well. But this is something that isn't new, has existed for a long time now, but it has over the past few years, and especially now, uh, has been going quite uh, rapidly. So it'll be interesting to see uh, in terms of maybe portfolio um, allocations, how that changes and, you know, are fund managers actually going to be putting more allocations into the ESG space? What does that then mean for non-ESG sectors, you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, to your it. point, 
and and to your point, I think it's a really good point that you made is the East piece was getting a lot, a lot of play. And, and for good reason, because around yes. climate change data and carbon data um, and just um, from a risk perspective, if you're um, if a company has a factory uh, that's suspect to typhoons in Taiwan, let's say hypothetically, um, that supply chain. So the company could be based in California, but the main chip maker is based in an area that's subject to flooding to natural disasters, the supply chain gets disrupted. And so a lot of firms were trying to better understand how that supply chain works and they were using the E piece of that. Mm-hmm. This changes things now a little bit, this coronavirus, and who knows if this is a long-term effect of it or if this will just be, you know, this just, just make uh, the S and the G bigger right now. But this is... This right now, the S and G are clearly better for trying to better understand the ripple effects of COVID-19. And so that's going to get a lot of play, I think, going forward. The E might take a backward step as people aren't now as concerned right now, specifically right now, around like those supply chains, those natural disasters, those kind of other E carbon emissions, all that kind of stuff. Um, but that can change also that it's it's one of those things. And uh, sorry, just one last thing. When you have such a big E, S and G, each one can be separated and should be its own diverse thing. But unfortunately, we just lump these three things together. And that's the problem with having such a large, diverse data set is you're lumping all these things together. And so you just kind of got to figure out the metrics. It's, you know, you or kind of got to figure out the the disbursement as to what is most important for your portfolio right now. Yeah, I think you do have a point there. Um, and uh, but I do I, I disagree with the fact that you said uh, maybe the E part will kind of take a little bit of a tell me uh, why hippie tell me seat. why. <laughs> <laughs> if anything, the E will play an even more important part now. But as as you mentioned earlier, Tony, um, Unfortunately, this has been lumped into one. E, S, and G actually can be separated. And in fact, I think personally, I think the G part is really important. This actually comes back down to like how the whole company is run, the the management that they have in place, how they even treat their staff. Like, um, yeah, are they transparent with uh, you know things that are going on within the company? And then obviously, this would be uh, a little harder if you know they are not up to uh, any good. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, or trying to do some, uh, uh, what do you call that? Misdealings? I don't know. Um, yeah, or just yeah. or greenwashing and stuff like that, too, is also an effect of it, too. Yeah, so each of these aspects are equally as important. And they will only continue to be, to, to gain even more importance. But, so I don't know whether we can actually state that one is going to take the back seat and one's going to be more important i think um they will all just be more important so maybe maybe what might happen is we might see these like esg actually being separated i i would certainly advocate for that i just think it's 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 a tough enough sell but yeah you know i, I think that certainly the, the savvier firms are separating them internally data providers themselves might still just an easier package to say yes and G and they don't want to disrupt that Apple card, I guess, but we'll see. But that's uh, only because it is, it is still a small part of the overall investment pool. Mm-hmm. 
So as it grows, maybe they will find that it's too big. There are too many factors that are involved in there that, uh, you know, to lump it all into one. Yeah, no, I, I think that would, and it makes the most logical sense. I completely agree on that. Um, yeah. So that was a good acquisition. It was a good transition. Sadly, don't have a great transition for the next piece, but we do have a guest on this week. And <laughs> unfortunately, I didn't get to listen to it yet. Uh, so, yeah, why shouldn't why you tell us about our guest this week? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Nailed it. Great, great transition, Tony. Thank you. Thank it you. looks like I won this time, and you just. And what happened to you? Yeah, okay. uh, maybe too many beers. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so our guest this week is George Ralph. He's the managing director at RFA. And so he came on the podcast talking a little bit about the impact that firms are seeing uh, in terms of cybersecurity. And uh, I don't know if any of you have noticed, the Financial Stability Board actually published a consultation report uh, earlier this week. Um, just seeking some information on how firms have had to deal with cyber-related activity um, since this pandemic started, basically. So I think they are seeking for um, responses by the 20th of July. So if if you you know uh, want to submit then anything, just uh, I'll I'll include the link here in uh, to that uh, consultation report as well. So. Yeah, we talked uh, we talked a lot about security challenges that firms are facing, particularly as majority of staff are working from home, and how um, RFA specifically has been helping uh, their clients kind of uh, either bolster or execute their BCPs. Um, it's funny actually. Um, I've uh, I've spoken to quite a few people on BCPs, and the fact of the matter is, many firms have BCP plans already. But they are most likely not for an extended period of time. Uh, at this point, we don't know when this pandemic will. Uh, we don't know how long this pandemic will last for. So that was a really interesting point um, that we spoke about yeah. uh, because a, a lot of these BCPs, if if any, um, you know, a lot of them have been uh, tested on. Let's say, okay, I'll have half of my staff work from work remotely, and yeah. half of it you know, at still still at the office or on, on site. But now majority, if not all, uh, of staff are working from home. And that that leads to quite a number of different risks, right? Uh, all coming down to like network and stuff. Yeah. yeah it's interesting because you, you when you create a BCP, you don't expect your global workforce to be working remotely um, and not just for like after Hurricane Sandy or after 9-11 where, you know, there was disruption for weeks and, you know, into the months kind of like this, but where it's months and for an uncertain amount of time, that is actually interesting. So I look forward to listening to it, Weishan, just as our audience should. Okay. And without further ado, then let's kick it over to, to that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, have a good day. Okay. So with me today is George Ralph, Managing Director at RFA a cloud and cybersecurity pr provider to the alternative investment sector. Um, George, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. And also, I just found out it's your birthday too. Happy birthday. Uh, thank you. And uh, thank you for having me. Well, it's, yeah, it's great to have you. Actually, we've, we've um, for a few weeks now, we've uh, had a couple of guests on the podcast, you know, speaking about the impact that they're seeing uh, from this pandemic. And uh, I also thought it would be a good 
good idea to cover the security angle with you today. Um, and actually, yesterday, which is the 20th of uh, April, the Financial Stability Board actually published a consultation report trying to get more information from firms of all sorts, you know, um, uh, basically gather information on some of the lessons they have learned or are learning from uh, this pandemic in relation to cyber activity. So let's kickstart our discussion today. Um, I guess, you know, with this, with as, as this pandemic goes on, uh, we don't know how long it's going to last for. Um, and with the, with financial institutions having majority of their staff work from home, you know, what are the main security challenges that they are facing? You know, and could you give some some specific examples relative to uh, your area of expertise in terms of like hedge funds and asset managers? Yes, definitely. Um, you know, as, as a business, we've got almost 900 firms in our, in our space globally. So it's quite good to be able to share some of that experience with others. Um, Obviously, some of them have been very positive, some of them not. Um, I think from a security perspective, um, there's, a, there's a couple of major differences with the scenario we're in. You know, people can always be in a position to test their BCP and their DR plans in a, in a planned and structured way. If it's unplanned, you know, you, you tend to have this approach of let's send half of the people home to try and work from there. Um, I think specifically on security, the one major thing that people are, are slightly missing in terms of this is that it's a very public event uh, globally, obviously, um, mm -hmm. where IT teams and firms are having to completely change their working model. And normally, if a firm decides that they're going to downsize the number of people they have in office and they're going to have half of the office work from home and have sort of desk sharing and things like this. It's an internal event. It's planned. It's structured. The security controls and provisions are changed to adapt. And now what's happened is that the majority of firms are having 100% home working, which is essentially 100% satellite offices uh, overnight. Uh, it's very public. People who have targeted specific firms are obviously going to take advantage of that. Um, and, you know, it's really the opportunist trying to take advantage with phishing attack increases and things like this. But the, the core thing is that it's a public event. People know what's happening. If they want to target that firm, now's the time to do it. Um, and there's a real shift away from the kind of centralised security um, of the traditional uh, perimeter controls, as we call it, to now focus on the endpoint, you know, laptops and mobiles, because the controlled network that the devices are sitting on is not controlled. It, it's just a home network. So those are the two major things. One, that it's a public event uh, and everyone knows that they're having to change tool sets needed. And the other is that they're moving towards more web-based tools for things like web filtering and centralized storage in the cloud and, and things like that. Yeah, um, I guess also the point to make is that, uh, you know, when firms are trying to test their BCP plans or their DR plans, um, you know, these are only for a certain amount of time. And now we, there's, there's no kind of end in sight in, in this case, right? So, you know, yeah. um, 
How how have you been helping clients, you know, with either with with kind of executing these plans specific to security and in, in and for those that already have like adequate BCPs in place, you know, how have they had to tweak it to fit this current situation given that it's like a yeah, there's no end end in sight for the moment. Yeah, so my 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 background personally is is on auditing and information assurance, which back in the day was all about DR planning and BCP. So it's it's my thing. I'm a little bit uh, focused on it. And so when we onboard clients, um, our compliance team get very involved in ensuring that the BC plans are in place. But there's always this staged approach to BC. P and recovery, um, where you always have specific timelines with actions. And normally, most firms will have an action of, you know, if, you, if you're if you away or enabled to use the office for a two or three week period, it's time to start looking for a replacement site. That, that, that action has obviously completely gone out of the window. Mm-hmm. Um, and now there's a slight concern around what happens if uh the office location has stability issues you know firms who are in serviced offices now um what happens if if the serviced office firms go bust because people aren't paying them which means there's potential for a blackout so a lot of firms that may have really good rugged bcp plans that include longer term remote access uh, the likelihood is obviously low but there is a risk that the the base if you like it becomes inaccessible so the reliance on the cloud is is much um more prevalent now i think uh in terms of longer term policies and procedures are very important making sure that everyone is aware of of the processes um you know you can't stand up from your desk and and uh, lean over and ask the finance team to process a payment you know you can't nudge the person next to you and ask them a question about a trade um and and also training is important making sure that people are really vigilant um that's obviously very important at the moment and especially you know people's emotions are running slightly higher um and and cyber attacks are, are normally event driven and then i think you know realistically no one no one was prepared <laughs> for anything like this. You could have been the most prepared firm with a BCP plan and you could have tested it many times a year with everyone working from home, but it's 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 really the scaling of, of workforce. Most firms, when they do the testing, it will be for, for core staff or potentially 50% of the staff, not the whole lot. You know, we specifically design solutions for clients whereby you can spin up additional resource um, the click of a button. So we've been okay, but I've heard rumours from peers of mine that have clients in in cloud infrastructure. You know, some technology firms in in Luxembourg, where we also work, for example, that there aren't that many data centres in Luxembourg. It's a very small country, uh, and and there's a limit of resources in the cloud there. And there are a few IT firms that have struggled because the number of users overall they're looking after they just can't cope. Um, and so I think there'll be a big shift of major IT players are, are after the dust settles of this exercise. Um, we're sort of trying to prepare for that now. Um, there was also, when I'm touching on resource challenges, there, there are alerts coming from the Azure UK region right now because they've actually run out of resource capacity. 
And so firms trying to spin up new servers now, there are occasional error messages coming up saying that you need to try again later. Uh, that's not the exact message. Um, but you need to try again later because the resource allocation may not function correctly right now. So there's all kinds of trickle effect uh, impacts for even those who have um, resolved their BCP planning. But the, so to your point, the tweaking is really about the longer term point, as, as you rightly made, making sure that the controls that are in place are really focused around the users uh, and that the training is there to make sure they remain as vigilant as possible. Okay, I mean, for those, uh, as you as you mentioned, uh, you know, yeah, cloud is getting a lot more important now, especially in this uh, difficult time. Um, but then there is the issue of um, capacity, and that's not even up. That is that is not the fault of the firm itself, right? I mean, yeah, maybe they didn't have. Uh, they, they didn't subscribe to cloud services before and now they want to, but at the same time, as you mentioned earlier, you know, yeah, you may get an error message saying, yeah, we don't have capacity right now. Um, you, um, how can, how can firms like deal with this? How are they managing it right now? So there's, there's been some firms that have approached me directly as an individual who I, kind of help on the side, even though they're not clients of ours. And it may be that they're, you know, considering a change of IT provider. But in some cases, they're people that I've known for, you know, 25, 30 years in the sector. And what I've been doing with them is is giving them uh, public cloud infrastructure and then working with their IT firms to connect the two together. So they've got some kind of spin-off. Um, the, the, the other thing is to give them a segregated storage pool. So you know, firms that are working on traditional file servers and exchange servers and things. The key thing really is for them to um, potentially set up a secondary file server, and I'm trying to keep it as simplistic as possible. But, you know, you've got a traditional file server, you set up a second server, you can join the two together, which gives you additional storage, or, or you can split the teams so that they have separate storage areas. There is a limit to what you can do. I mean, if you're a firm that runs on traditional servers, for example, the problem is going to be the ability to actually get new servers right now. Um, it's very hard to order equipment because the supply chains just aren't there. Um, even even procuring laptops is quite difficult right now. So really, it, it's about using the tools off the shelf that are available online and mm -hmm. trying to do it in a secure way. The The, the key thing is, you know, and, and focusing from a security perspective, right now you've got users, if they're bad users, you know, the whole insider threat um, risk is huge right now. You know, insider threats defined as, um, you know, uh, basically using legitimate channels to extract data, you know, not illegitimate channels like hacking. So, you know, you, you've got people working in on a network and in an environment that potentially the IT teams have never seen. Um, those users, if they are potential insider threats because they are disgruntled or thinking about leaving, the whole shadow IT becomes a massive risk. You know, people emailing files to their personal email addresses or downloading files to the local machine or installing Dropbox or all of these kind of risks. And if the IT teams aren't quick to react or haven't been 
to really roll out security and monitoring controls on the machines that the people are given. That that's the biggest risk right now. So how would how would a firm you know put processes or maybe even training in place to um, help prevent something like that? So the key thing really is to use behavioural software. So the traditional antivirus tools are very much, you know, you install it on a server, an agent goes onto the PCs, uh, the PCs go back to that server every now and then in order to get updated what's called definition files. Those definition files determine what new virus risks have come out in the last month. Right, that's that's how antiviruses work traditionally. These days, you have what's called next generation uh, antivirus, which is also anti-malware, but it also, in a lot of cases, provides behavioural analysis. So, for example, our cybersecurity tools that we roll out—it's actually an RFA product. It's all designed around the endpoint and not the firewall and the physical office location. So, for example, there are hidden agents that go on all of our clients' devices and it, and it monitors and tracks their normal data behaviour. So if they start downloading files or emailing files in bulk to non-corporate email addresses and things like that, we get an alert on our systems exactly the same as we would get an alert if there was a virus attack uh, on the network. And so we can either block the machine and then we can see what, what, what was happening in the background or we can notify their manager. Um, and so that we've basically been locking down a lot more in this environment. So we're getting more alerts than we would normally get to try and keep on top of things to help our clients. Traditionally, we actually used that as a means to inform our clients when we thought that a member of staff was thinking about leaving because their behaviour and their usage of data tends to change. Uh, even the working patterns. And I think firms that don't have that approach and they're reliant on things like the firewall and proxy servers for web filtering, for them it's going to be about how quickly they can or, or they have rolled out endpoint security, so things like cloud-based antivirus, so the machines don't have to connect to a server, it's all done over the internet. Um, things like cloud-based web filtering, so where the machines have a hidden agent that, that tracks their internet usage and, and protects the users from rogue websites. It's, it's all about moving from that centralised security to the, the dispersed on the endpoint. Um, mm. And talking about the websites, I, um, I read a statistic last week that Google reported a 350% increase uh, in phishing websites that had been created since the virus came about. Um, wow. So it's it's really important for people to be vigilant right now. And so the training, you know, even if you do e-learning once a week or once every two weeks, you know, especially for new starters in this period, making sure they're aware of, of um, things to look out for, you know, phishing emails, rogue websites, things like that very important right now. Mm. I mean with the phishing emails, I mean these are, uh, <laughs> I've seen a couple of examples and, and they seem really, really uh, very close to what the real thing, what, what a real email from a legitimate company would look like. So um, how much training actually can be done to, you know, for 
for staff to be able to absorb this information because when they when they're looking at emails, sometimes it, it just, I mean, I mean, just speaking from my personal experience here, um, and I, you know, it could be very different from like a trader's perspective. You know, when they have tons of notifications and emails coming in, and then they're just like clicking or looking through them very quickly. You know, how do they, you know, have to take a step back and say, oh, wait a minute, let me check if this is. This is uh, from a legitimate source, or you know, just to you know make sure that everything's in place. Because, I mean, traders also you know are on on their feet quite a lot, well, so so to speak. <laughs> I mean, they they have to think really quickly and act really quickly. So, yeah, how do they get that done? So there's there's a few things that you can do, right? And the training thing is really about vigilance, which I know I've said a couple of times, but it's so important. You know, just make sure that. People are thinking about data flow. You know, who requested the information in the first place? Is this email that's coming to you, does it make sense? Is it legitimate that they're asking you for information when actually that firm is the one that you normally ask for information? You know, little things like that. And that's very important on mobiles as well right now because there are quite a few text attacks going around. I think in terms of technology and prevention, you know, there are some really quick fixes that can be done to help with this. We, we have tools that notify staff if they get an email from someone they don't normally get an email from, so sort of a new email address. They get a, a red ribbon that comes up in the email if the address is from an external domain, so not an internal user. All of these little things can help. Um, actually, the external email address you can actually configure that in, in an exchange server in Office 365 for free. You just know how to configure it correctly. But even that, you know, if someone tries to hack an email address or has successfully uh, got your email address to start an attack, what they normally do is masquerade the email and they change the domain name slightly. You know, they use an I instead of an E or something like that. And so actually that's quite a quick and dirty solution to catching those ones out. If you if you configure your email services so that it notifies the people uh, internally when it's an external email address, that's quite a quick win. Um, so there's a few little things you can do. And, in, and if you do get huge amounts of email every day, which is probably everyone these days, um, you know, having those little ribbons come up and give you information is quite useful. Okay, and then you know, in, in the case that firms actually have the whole remote working setup, you know, up and running well, you know, what happens uh, to, let's say, updates to their operating systems and the security that has that, that deals with that? You know, um, I've heard uh, a firm tell me that some of some of some of the firms in this industry, you know, these have to be done. These updates have to be done like in-house on site uh, for that specific machine. So if if that if no one is going in and or if that if those updates can be done because a, the machines are not there um you know what is what are some of the concerns if i mean related to security if those aren't updated yeah I, I mean the key thing with with patching specifically and operating system updates um it's very much about the critical updates and most firms will have patching cycles. So for example, servers they'll do every um, 40 to 45 days, workstations they might do every 30 days. 
but then critical patches are done whenever they're released and tested. Um, we we run patching cycles in line with uh, programs like NCSC, which is the National Cybersecurity Centre that runs under GCHQ in the UK. They, they tend to have the best framework for patching cycles, uh, things like NIST and other bodies. And then we kind of adapt it to our own. But all of our, again, all of our solutions are designed around the endpoint. So we can patch all of our clients' machines uh, remotely, wherever they are, as long as they're on the internet. Um, from a server perspective, you know, this is why the cloud's so good. Because if you're running an Azure server, you, you can spin up another Azure server or the replica while you update the, the original one. So actually, there is no interruption. And you know, if you think about it, public cloud, you're always working on the machine remotely anyway. So it doesn't really matter where the IT professional is. I think the challenge will be where people have, again, running things like uh, SCOM, which is the Windows uh, server update service from Microsoft that requires you to be near the update server, which means you won't be able to update people's laptops unless they're attached to the network. And if they're at their home location, you wouldn't necessarily want to send updates across their internet line to do all the updates for every single house because that might then punish your office network. So again, it's about adapting to the endpoint. I mean, everything really is. I think there is, if you've got really good antivirus and it's and it's a very modern antivirus next generation and it does that behavioral analysis like, like I talked about, you know, I think you could probably get away with not patching the machines for a month to two months, if that's how long this is going to last. Um, it's not advised, but you could probably get away from it. But the critical patches are the ones that have to be done because they're the ones that are reactionary. You know, someone at, at Microsoft, for example, has spotted there is an issue. And so this critical patch has been released and they want you to run it as quickly as possible. Um, the thing to look out for with patching, I think, is uh, sort of fake updates, which normally are, uh, are mobile related. So again, just making sure that when you get an alert to click a button to do an update, it's actually legitimate. Mm. Okay. Oh, that's that's really interesting. I mean, I mean, have you has anyone actually come to come out to you and ask, you know, for a solution in this in this case? Yeah, and I think. You know what some firms are doing because they really don't have the opportunity to make a change like this um, overnight is actually sending out instructions to users of how to turn on automatic updates so you could run automatic updates directly on the machine so the updates are coming over the internet and you could do that probably for a month or two as long as the machines are standard builds so all of the staff have got corporate devices that are all the same and then the IT team can can do the updates in advance of the automatic update <laughs> to make sure that when the updates run they're not crashing anything and then the IT team basically just have to stay a few days ahead of the rest of the staff so they're still testing it but the deployment is automatic and in a lot of firms they're, they're kind of limited to that as an option Okay. Oh, interesting. So, I mean, obviously, you provide your solutions are all cloud-based. Um, you know, how have you have you seen like a, a uh, I guess a take up in demand for cloud 
services or cyber cyber security services uh, via the cloud. I mean, because there's still, I mean, before all this happened, there's still a lot of concerns, uh, you know, with using uh, the cloud, especially public cloud, you know, uh, particularly when it comes to, you know, handling sensitive data, like customer data and, and so forth. So like, how are firms looking to, how do you see firms looking uh, look to migrate more critical workloads and data, you know, uh, how are they dealing with these previous concerns? Mm. I think it's an opportunity, really. Um, I mean, we, we're, we're agnostic when it comes to cloud. We, we design the solutions at the point of engagement with the client because every firm is different, you know, and you, you, you have to focus as the partner in IT, you have to focus on risks to the business the client's business you have to make sure that it's aligned to their strategy and the fun types um you know even around where data is domiciled um and making sure the end user experience is right you know if you've got someone who's on the road doing marketing for nine months out of 12 you you want them to be all based around the laptop that they've got if you've got someone who sits in the office full time then it's a very different setup and so the cloud really, our, our tool sets are all designed to work with any cloud platform. Um, we've got cybersecurity tools and dashboards that work across all the platforms. They do our automation and management. And so the tool sets really depend on, on what's rolled out. And it's very much the importance of making sure that the controls are in place when servers are spun up. You know, the, the risk of public cloud really is a lack of experience when it comes to setup. You know, when you deploy a traditional server and you install a Microsoft operating system on it, you wouldn't just leave it like that. You would then install antivirus. You would then make sure that it's up to date and it's patched. You would make sure it sits behind a firewall. You know, all of these kind of things which are very subconscious to IT people. When you set up an Azure server or, you know, like us, we use Google, we use Azure, AWS, or all of these clouds, including our own, the risk is that you can spin up a server in these environments and there is nothing to say, well, hang on, you haven't set up a firewall yet, or you haven't done the updates, or you haven't clicked the box to say you want antivirus. And so the risk really is setting up a server with ill experience and it's just not configured right. I mean, if you look at the Capital One case, that's exactly what happened. They spun up an AWS server. It wasn't secured properly. They put data on it, went into production, and then they had the breach. And so the, the key thing is that when firms move to public cloud, they don't just go, okay, we're going to use public cloud now. Let's just go all or nothing. It should be a gradual phased approach, you know, and with using tools like ours, and, and there are other firms out there that do it, the cybersecurity tools cross across everything. You know, we when we look at our dashboards, we can see the private cloud, the servers on site, public cloud. It just looks at it as a back-end infrastructure rather than pigeonholing it. Um, and the management controls we use, they allow us to only release servers to production once they've met the minimum standards. So it's protecting us and the client from releasing something faster than it should be. And I think that's right. the key thing. And when I say it's an opportunity, it's really an opportunity for IT teams to sort of take this as to, and say to the board, 
we can't keep doing what we're doing remotely on on the traditional servers that are sat in a rack in your office you know e even if people are still using tape backup for example or even disk-based backup in their office they can't actually go there and get the tape right um mm. in some cases they can um you know a lot of it people if they're in banking for example they're classed as key workers so they probably could but do they want to you know and so it should be used as an opportunity to for it people i think to reinforce the benefit of public cloud platforms uh, or cloud providers generally to to the board to show them that you know this is exactly the scenario where the cloud does come into its own you know we don't need to have an antivirus that sat in our office um, we don't need to have a file server that's sitting in the office that means everyone now has to use a vpn server to connect to it you know, you're using a VPN, you're connecting your home network to the office network. So that in itself is a risk. So I think really the view for IT people especially should be that it's seen as an opportunity to reinforce the benefits. I think for business owners and leaders in our sector, it should be seen as an opportunity to get rid of the old equipment they've got, where they're having to worry about patching and maintenance and whether the air conditioning is still working in the room and all of these kind of things. So I think it's a good a good thing in that I'm hoping it will shift people's mindset a little bit. But it's all about how it's configured and the security controls, because if they're not right, you don't really have anything. Right, right. And I guess, you know, beyond uh, beyond the measures that firms can take right now, you know, once we go back, once everyone goes back to work, you know, um, what are some of the things that you hope to see, you know, put in place by, uh, you know, um, in terms of cybersecurity and some of the issues that uh, management at firms you need, need to take? What are your thoughts on that? Um, I think there's obviously going to be a very different approach to how people think about their BCP testing. Um, I think, you know, what's traditionally happened is that regulators and when due diligence has been done on firms, there's been a, you know, when did you last do a BCP test? Uh, was it successful? I think now it's going to be how long did you do the BCP test for? You know, how did you deal with the virus situation? Were there any breaches? What did you learn from it? You know, the due diligence process will change. That's going to have a longer term impact. I think more people will be thinking about how to run uh, systems remotely, i.e. things like, um, you know, the, the Excel add-ins, uh, data feeds, things like this that previously relied on dedicated lines into the office. I think things like that will change. Phone systems will definitely change. Uh, I think that's been a big issue for people. Um, the FCA actually in the UK recently re uh, relaxed the MIFID rules uh, for call recording because of the challenges people have been having. Mm. Um, and then I think from a technology perspective, you know, if, if we ignore the fact that probably firms are going to allow people to work from home more, um, I think it's going to be focused more on things like multi-factor authentication, single sign-on, um, moving the intrusion protection and web filtering services away from the office. 
and focusing more on the devices so that people can roam with the devices they've got. Um, and then I think it will probably be um, a, a view of containerization. So looking at the usage of Citrix more and virtual desktop type scenarios. Um, and hopefully it, it, there will be a, a shift towards making sure that users are more aware of their actions um, and, and are feeding back to the business as to what systems are beneficial to use. Okay. Um, and, and in terms of RFA itself, in terms, uh, in terms of the solutions that you have, you know, what can what can clients expect, uh, you know, in terms of maybe enhancements or uh, what are what are some of the things that you're going to be working on that you are working on, sorry, um, that you know they'll be able to see, you know, come out in the next few months. Well, we're 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 having a big push at the moment, and when I say we're having a big push, all of our sort of new solution designs and everything they come from clients. You know, if the clients come to us with a challenge, um, and we find ways to resolve them. And so data management services have been a massive thing for us recently, um, using things like Tableau and Power BI to really investigate the client's data already that they've got. And we have a global partnership with a firm called Snowflake, which is really, it's seen as a replacement to Microsoft SQL. Um, and it's completely cloud-based. So again, you're moving the shift from having a server infrastructure to something which is almost SaaS. But because it's completely cloud-based, uh, scenarios like this mean that people can still do the research. They can still access all of the data that they need to to do a little bit of machine learning or, or historical uh, decision making. And so I think things like that are going to continue to really bloat in terms of topics. Um, it's, it's really we're getting a lot of requests around that at the moment. And then I think cyber controls. Um, as I was saying around the shift to the endpoint, I think that's really going to be the next thing. Um, our, our controls are already there for that. Our tools are already there. I, I just hope that after this, more and more people say, yes, let's do it. Um, and there's less of a, a sort of, a, well, it's not broke. Why do we need to change anything attitude um, so that things aren't rushed? Uh, we 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 did um, uh, a newsletter with all of our clients when this first broke out because we started a resource center on our website for things like a remote working checklist. So people knew that they had to change their passwords on routers and, and things like that. So it wasn't the default. But as part of that, we gave a trial to our um, artificial intelligence tool that tracks user behavior that I mentioned earlier to try and encourage people to use it, even if it was just for the trial period and then cancel it afterwards, because we just wanted to protect people. Because I think you, you, there's a lot of things that happen on a network that you don't necessarily see. And home networks obviously are shared. You know, you have young professionals that are working in cities in shared, shared housing or shared flats, two or three people to an apartment. And so those are the key areas because you, you've basically got three different companies potentially working on the same network. It's like a serviced office, but without any security. Um, and those are the things for people really to think about. And I think it will become more prevalent in the future. I think potentially people will want to send corporate firewalls to homes of those users that work remotely a lot um, so that they've got their own segregated network 
from the rest of the house. Okay, interesting. Um, just curious, you mentioned Snowflake, uh, that, that you're doing some work with Snowflake. This is um, on virtual data warehouses, isn't that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting because I a couple of months ago I did a, a piece on virtual data warehouses and how firms are looking to use that more. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've had a massive, uh, uh, as I said, a push on that in the last six months. I mean, our team has grown by about seventeen people, I think, in, in six months, which for a firm of uh, two hundred and fifty plus staff, that's quite a big percentage uh for a new area of our business and so this application development and business intelligence dashboards growth has been huge um and snowflake i think is the leader in this i think they were classed as the most invested in it startup fintech 13 billion investment or something it's huge wow. you know and if you're ever going to have a product that was going to be more prominent and probably a microsoft's focus it was going to be something that replaces microsoft sql because it's not an expensive product to run. But isn't it the case that it's it's only good for um, it's, it won't be used for like everything. It's only it'll be used for specific maybe workflows. Yeah, I mean, it can be used for everything. It depends what the database is, obviously. Um, mm. And it's very much the kind of data lake into data warehouse approach. Um, and it really depends on what kind of ETLs you've got to ingest the data and connect to the different data source. I mean, there's lots and lots of that we could talk for an hour on this, so we, should, <laughs> we shouldn't go into it. But I think, you know, going for this whole serverless model and SaaS model, it, it's just going to keep it's just going to keep growing, isn't it? I mean, it's like IT generally. It's it's not necessarily a gradual uphill graph it's almost vertical the adoption of technology right. and and as investors become more comfortable with the use of public cloud and SaaS, and firms learn how to respond and, and give reassurance that it's safe because of the controls they've got in place it will just keep growing and growing and growing i think people are starting to realize that public cloud is not cheaper um but it's just easier and it's more efficient and you don't necessarily have to pay for it when you're not using it. Um, you know, and all of these kind of beneficial features that you get from public cloud. It's not just a lift and shift. You know, you wouldn't necessarily take a file server and then put it in the public cloud. You would want to use it in a different way. You might want to use SharePoint or, you know, something like that. And so the, these are the tools really that are provided that people should make use of for the features. It's definitely not a cost thing. Okay. Well, I think we covered quite a bit of ground here today. So, um, and yeah, separately on the virtual data warehouses, yeah, let's let's leave that for another conversation, uh, a separate conversation. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, once again, thank you very much, George, for joining us on the podcast today, uh, and also happy birthday again. Thank you. Thank you for having me.